book of Philippians chapter 1. book of Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 21. When you got it, say so. The apostle Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, and being confident of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and the and joy of faith. Now, your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And he continues on in verse 27. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your love. We thank you, dear God, for your gracious kindness toward us. And Father, I pray that in these next few moments that I would decrease and that you would increase, Lord God, that you would speak to the hearts of my brothers and sisters, even as you have spoken to mine already, and that you would give all of us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church Father, we surrender to you and we want to be aligned with you in all things, in all areas of our lives. Help us, fill us with your grace, Lord God, that we we may walk in obedience to your truth. We thank you for this. In Jesus' mighty name, someone said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. For the last few weeks, we have been dealing with a series entitled, gospel-centered, and we've been talking about the need and the importance of us being a gospel-centered people. And the one thing that becomes so important is that in order for us to be a gospel-centered church, which is the prayer that I have, which is the prayer of my heart and the hope that is within me, is that we would be a truly gospel-centered church, a church that doesn't just talk about Jesus, but a church that truly lives and does everything surrounding Jesus and around him and his agenda and his will in the earth. And in order for us collectively and corporately to be a gospel-centered church, we must be gospel-centered individually. And so as you've been hearing this message, I've, I've already hoped and prayed that you have heard this and that you have been challenged and that you have gone into your Bibles and you've begun to seek God and say, God, show me the gospel in a way that I've never seen it before. Reveal yourself unto me in a manner that is life changing and transforming. And I think that when you look at this whole title of the series, you know, when we hear a series, whatever it may be, I think that immediately we'll sit down and we'll think, you know, man, I'm excited about that. And, you know, some of us hear things that we get excited about, we're motivated on and other people I mean I've had people tell me man I couldn't wait for you to finish that series hallelujah that's encouraging amen glory to God but but nonetheless they, they, they don't say it in you know in, in disrespect they're just being honest and I'm okay with honesty as long as you can handle it when I'm honest in return hallelujah Glory to God. And so ultimately, the fact of the matter is that we hear a series title or a message title and we think, man, is that for me? You know, I get excited, don't get excited. And when you think about gospel centered, I think it begs the question, is being gospel centered for everyone or just for some people? Is being gospel centered for every person that calls himself a Christian or for just certain select few Christians? And I want to say unequivocally that absolutely 100% being gospel centered is the call of everyone who calls himself a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, your goal as a Christian is to make sure that Jesus is the center of your life in every single area, not just some areas. If you call yourself a Christian, then what you are saying is that you have given 100% a 
allegiance. You have submitted yourself 100% under his lordship. And you are saying, God, have your way in my life and lead me. And in essence, without you realizing it or me realizing it or whatever the case is, the moment that I came to Jesus, I decided I was going to become gospel-centered. Now, I may not have known that. I may not have understood that. I can guarantee you I've never done an altar call or an invitation and said, hey, you're coming forward to be gospel sent. I never said that. And, and, and I never really heard that either. But what I do know is this, is that when I read my Bible, what I understand when I'm looking at a, a, a comment like the Apostle Paul that he makes in verse 21, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is communicating something unto us. And that is what our lives should look like. That is what our lives should look like. And why do I say that? Bishop, he's talking about himself. He's not saying I need to be that way. Yes, but in other places, the apostle Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what he communicates. And so if he is saying that to live, to, to live is Christ for him, that means that for everybody who's a believer, everybody who bows, that bows their knee or their heart to Jesus, everyone who calls himself a Christian, that should be your heart and that should be your desire. So as I've gone through this series, I think that I've gone through some very important things. I think the most central um, points uh, you know, that, that I went through concerning what it is to be gospel-centered, we talk about keeping everything in order. The first message that I, that, that I preached in this series was keeping things in order from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul tells you that I preached to you what was of first importance. And the gospel always has to be of first importance in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. It has to be of first importance. And it, when it gets out of focus then remember we start losing focus on what really matters and what life is really about because we've lost focus or lost sight of what Jesus is has done on the cross for us and how he gave his life so that way we could have life so ultimately, we understood that. I hope you understood that. And for some of you may have missed it, so I'll just do a really quick review. We went through and we talked about the gospel-centered identity. We dealt with what I believe to be what it has to be one of the most important things is what is it that identifies you? Is it your job? Is it your connections? Is it your accomplishments? Is it your failure? Because a lot of times we allow different things, the wrong things many times, most of the time, to define us and to tell us who we are, or we strive for certain things that we don't even need to strive for because we're so used to having to be good enough to get accepted, having to do enough to get approval, and yet Jesus died on the cross for us, and he gave us the ultimate approval. What we have to do is embrace that truth, love him, and be identified by who he is and not anything else. To be gospel-centered in our identity. We talked about being gospel-centered in our worship. Out of that identity comes this worship. It's not a worship where I'm trying to earn things from God. It's not a worship that I'm trying to get God's attention. It's a worship that is purely because I understand I have his attention. I understand I've got his approval. Not because I'm so good. Not because I'm so great. But because of what Jesus did. Again, if you don't have the first thing in order, which is the gospel, you will not have the right identity and you will worship Falsely, you will be an idolater rather than a worshiper. What do you mean, Bishop? What I mean is you will be one who worships worship rather than the creator. You will be one who comes to church and listens to the music and the quality of it and the sound of the vocals and all of these different things rather than worshiping the one who died for you on the cross in spite of everything that may be wrong. You will be a person who comes to church and what you will do is you will look for an experience with God rather than looking for an opportunity to pour your love on him. Amen. If you don't have the right identity, worship will become an idol rather than something that you offer to God because you won't worship him outside. As a matter of fact, you will be good so you stay in his favor rather than being good because you are in his favor. But when you have the wrong mindset, and that's the reason why we have to have a gospel-centeredness in our worship. We talked about gospel-centered community. Out of this God being first and the gospel being first, out of us having the right identity, out of us being worshipers, we are also called to be in community, one with the other. We are called to be in intimate relationship, not solely to come together and use the church building like we would use a fitness club or a, you know, or, or some kind of neighborhood club that we go to. 
but that God would be central and that we would be a community of believers who carry each other's burdens, not only in prayer, but practically. That when I see my brother or my sister hurting or going through something, that I am there to mourn with them, as the Bible says, and I am also there to rejoice with them. When they are promoted, I am not being envious and jealous, oh glory to God. See, that's how you really know how much you love somebody. When they get promoted, how do you respond? See, because when I see my daughter get good grades, I'm not like, man, wish I would have got those grades. Hello, somebody. We have these jealousy things that go on and someone else gets a, a, a promotion or someone else gets a car or someone else gets a house or someone else gets something, right? And we don't rejoice with each other. We're envious. The wrong heart. The wrong heart. And you know what it comes back to? Identity. It comes back to the gospel. Last week we spoke about gospel mission. And how important. And I want to emphasize this because I don't know if you got it last week. But listen, you need to realize that the vision and the mission that God has called us to is much bigger than this building. Let me say that again. The vision and the mission that God has called us to is much bigger than this building. I'll take it further. It's much bigger than this city. I'll take it further. It is much bigger than this state. Let's go a step further. It is much bigger than this nation. Going beyond that, it is bigger than anything that we can fathom in our mind. God has called us to be light to the world. And the beauty of this is that he saves us, separates us. You guys who missed Wednesday night, you missed a, a, a phenomenal teaching by um, a teacher. We were watching a video of one of the Worldview videos, and he was talking about something, um, about the difference. You know, he's talking about the, 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 the spiritual issues that are going on in the church and the spiritual confusion. And as, as Dr. Carlson was talking about this, he said in, in, in the closing of his message, he said, you know, he said, I have a friend of mine. He, he's, he used to be a Buddhist. And he said, and he, he was Buddhist and now he's a Christian. And so one day him and I were having a conversation. And as we we're having this conversation, he said, you know, he was asking, he was like, hey, man, he said, I want you to tell me, you know, what's the difference between Jesus and Buddha? I mean, really, you know, what's the difference between Christianity and Buddhism? I mean, it's all about being good, right? It's all about doing the right things and so on and so forth. And the guy said, you know what? He said, I'm going to explain to you something. He said, I grew up as a Buddhist. And he said, and as I was growing up, he said, it was as though I was in this huge lake and I was drowning. He said, I was in this huge lake, and I was drowning. I didn't know how to swim. He said, I was, about my, I was going down about the third time, and he said, and then all of a sudden, he said, Buddha came to the shore. He said, Buddha showed up on the shore, and Buddha said, all right, this is how you swim. He said, you start moving your arms. He said, you start kicking your feet. He said, but you know what? You got to make it to the shore. You got to get to the shore. He said, and so I was there, and he said, and Jesus showed up on that same shoreline. And he said, but Jesus didn't stop on the shoreline. Jesus dove into the water, grabbed me, brought me to the shore. Then he taught me how to swim and sent me back in so I could save others. I want you to get that picture because it is important that we understand that Jesus saved us not so we could just feel good about ourselves, not so we could just revel in how great and glorious he is. That is part of it. But he wants us to be out there as missionaries in this earth. And when you think about the word missionary, I want you to get a big vision of mission, but I want you to get a different perspective of a missionary. Because when we think of a missionary, we think of someone who sells everything they have and moves to another country moves to another land to go and preach the gospel you need to understand that right where you are God has called you to lay your life down in every area so that way you can be on mission with him bringing salvation to souls who need deliverance desperately God may call you and listen you may be in here and you're like man I feel like I want to go overseas I want to go and be a missionary that is an awesome call but for the rest of you for the other 90% of you that don't feel that call to go overseas because it's too uncomfortable or it's too whatever it is listen for you you, I want you to know you're not off the hook because you don't have this great burden for missions. You are called to missions. And the reason why I emphasize that the vision and mission of God is much bigger than this building is because we as a church, we become comfortable. We become complacent. And we think, well, you know, we're in a new building. Everything is good. It's nice. We're, no, listen, we need to get uncomfortable. Hello. About to turn the heat on and turn the AC off, glory to God. So we just want to get up out of this place, hallelujah. Listen, we need to want to get out of this place and go share the gospel. There is a world that is dying, dying. And God has given us that lifeline, his son. 
He's given us the call and the mandate, and we're supposed to be on mission. And so that's what this is. Those are the main points, and all of those points go with our mission statement that Pastor Robert reminds you of every week when he says we are committed to loving we're committed to growing together. We're committed to reaching others. We're committed to serving. When you look at all of that, that is all bound up in that. That is what a disciple is. And so when I was sitting down, I was, okay, Lord, where you want me to go with this next message? Just in my heart, I just felt like, man, I want to help my brothers and sisters understand one thing. How is it that I become gospel-centered? I just want to give you some practical tips here. I want I did, did, Right now, you just heard me probably preach as hard as I'm going to preach for the whole message, I think. I don't know. But anyway, we'll see what happens. But the point of the matter is... I want to give you some practical points because how do I become gospel-centered? How do I become that person? And now that we have the answer to the question, which is yes, everybody should be gospel-centered, I want to make one point that becomes very important. And is that the fact is this, is that the majority of what we call normal Christianity today is extremely subnormal in comparison to the Christianity that is exemplified and expected in the scriptures. What we call normal Christian. What we call, you know, the average Christian, you know, there's some averages that are out there. One of the averages, and I'm not really, I'm not really, you know, good with averages and everything like that. I don't really look into all of that. But one average that I happen to remember when I was reading, just because, you know, I'm the type of guy I don't really like to miss church a lot. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Not because it's my job. Let, 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 let me give you a testimony, okay? Let, let, let me give you, so some people think, oh, you know, the preacher, he just comes because it's his job to be here. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me break this down for you. When I was... Younger, I'm still young, hallelujah. But when I was younger, it's probably I was probably like 21. Yeah, I was about 21, 20, 20. No, I wasn't married yet, so I was 20 years old, hallelujah. 20 years old, 20 years old. I had a job and I used to work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday night. And I would work from like 10 o'clock at night to like six in the morning. So I worked those four days, and that was the time. It was all the way in Kissimmee, like Intercession City, you know where that is? That's like real far, right. I lived in Longwood at the time, so that's about a 45-minute drive. I would drive home every Sunday, every Sunday morning, got this job, and I would be exhausted. Because you know how it is. You work all night long, get home. You got to wind down for a moment before you can even try to fall asleep, right? So then you're doing what? You're there, and, you know, you fall asleep, and then you got to wake up in like an hour. That's tough on your body, right? Amen. Glory to God. And one Sunday, I decided, man, I can miss a Sunday. I'm going to sleep in today. And let me tell you something. I missed that Sunday morning to sleep. I wasn't, I wasn't, going, I wasn't going out to the beach. Hello. I, 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 was, I wasn't going to hang out with my friends somewhere. That wasn't what I was doing. I simply just wanted to sleep. And I want to tell you something. My heart was so convicted because I could have made the sacrifice that from that day forward, I honestly made a decision. I said, man, I can't be missing church like that. Even if I got to come home and go to sleep and miss the rest of the day, it doesn't matter. Why do I share that? Because I want you to get something, man. It's not because of a job that I'm here. And it isn't because I was trying to be overly religious. I want to point something else out. At that time, I wasn't a pastor. I wasn't an assistant pastor. I was an average Christian. You know what the statistic is for the average Christian? You want to know how many Sundays a year they miss? Seven. Some of you double that. Some of you hear that statistic, you're like, okay, Bishop, I still need two more this year. Listen, you don't need to be an average Christian. I can guarantee you these folk were not missing church like that. Hello. That is in our day, especially in our culture. And so what am I saying? Don't ever miss church? That's not what I'm saying. That, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I would be an idiot to even try to propose something like that, okay? But what I am saying is, man, don't make it so easy to miss church. Amen? Don't make it so easy just to stay home and hit the snooze button and say, you know what, I'll get up later. Glory. No, no, no. Make it a point. Amen? That, 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 that's, that, that, that's the heart of my statement. But ultimately, not just in church attendance, but all across the board, when it comes to what our life is, you look at giving. Listen, I don't even get into the statistics of giving. I have one that's on my computer from Barna, and it's like um, how, how believers are now very cautious about their giving because of the economic times that we're in, and so we're afraid to, like, really give. 
This is, this, is not, this is not faith dome that I'm talking about alone. I'm talking about all across the board, churches that they do, you know, they ask questions to, they look at their income stuff, they look at all of these things. And so ultimately, there's a whole bunch of stuff. When you read your Bible, I can show you. When you read your Bible, you know what the scripture says? The scripture says they met daily in the temple and daily in each other's homes. Wait a second, that's a little different, right? Daily, that means that. That means Sunday, they came to church. Sunday, they were in someone's house. Monday, they came to church. Some of y'all from the old school, y'all know what I'm talking about. Right? Tuesday, in church. Go to someone's this is, this is how they were having church. You want to talk about church attendance? Subnormal, big time. Some people are, are having issues going to church once a week. Hello? One time a week. And I'm not talking to y'all that work. I know, because some of y'all get offended, right? You know, because you work and stuff like that. But Bishop, I'm working. and I, I ain't talking to you. If you got a justifiable reason not to be here, I am not talking to you. I'm talking to everybody else who's unjustified. So if you're justified, glory to God. I mean, hello. (laughs) But for the rest of you that just don't want to make the sacrifice or don't want to be here or rather sit, whatever, I'm talking to you. Hallelujah. Mm Mm-hmm. Talk about the, 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 the part of giving. How did they give in the New Testament? Think about that. I'm going to talk about giving later, but I'm just touch on it now. So just remember this, this exhortation. I don't got to repeat it later. Amen? How did they give? What, what does the Bible say about them? They were just coming and bringing 10% to the church. Is that what they were doing? Is that what they were doing? They gave. They were selling stuff. Glory to God. They were like, you know what? I don't need that property. I don't live there. I'm selling it. Bringing it to the church. Subnormal church, but I'm broke. Then I'm not talking to you. If you ain't got nothing to sell, then I can't talk to you like that. Hello? I call you to be a sacrificial giver. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? But ultimately, when you look at giving from that perspective, you look at fellowship. Do you understand what it means? Someone was in your house every day. Glory to God. Every day, someone up in your house, not just someone, a group of someone's. Probably a different group of someone's coming over, hanging out, having a good time, eating your food, sitting on your floor. Hello, because back then they didn't have couches, glory to God. Right? You got to wash everyone's feet or something like that was happening. Hello. Serious. When do we fellowship? You're fellowshipping right now for some of you. For some of you, this is the only time that you ever see somebody that goes to the same church you go to. That's sad. Subnormal. That's the reason why we need to be gospel-centered. Let me give you a definition of what I believe gospel-centered means. To be gospel-centered, it means to be transformed by the person and work of Jesus Christ through his spirit to the degree that every area of our life is an example of either Christ's finished work or his ongoing work. I'll read it again. To be gospel-centered is to be transformed by the person and work of Jesus Christ through his spirit, to the degree that every area of our life is an example of either Christ's finished work or his ongoing work. If I'm a gospel-centered person, I am someone who has been radically changed by the power of Jesus Christ. That means every area of my life has his mark on it. Some areas have a check mark and say, you're good to go. Keep on living like that. That's, that's wonderful. Other areas got a little sign say, work in progress. Work in progress. But I don't walk around like I'm not a work in progress. I don't walk around like I have arrived because I know that I have not. But to be gospel-centered means that my life has been changed and transformed. And listen, I hope that you are really checking yourself when you hear statements like that. And you're not just like sleeping, hoping, okay, maybe he'll pass that point. But that you will really look at yourself in the mirror for a moment and say, man, does my life look like the finished work of Jesus? Does my life look like I have really been forgiven? Does my life look like I have really been given a new name? Does my life look like I am no longer living for the old things but for the new does my life look like that because if it doesn't you need to be you need to repent of your sin if it doesn't look that way don't deceive yourself don't think it's okay to continue on how you are because here's here's the bold truth the truth is tomorrow's not promised to anyone 
And so what happens if you die in your sin? What happens? Well, some people will tell you you're going to die and that's it. You just die. Other people are going to tell you you might be reincarnated into something else because, you know, you did some good stuff, so maybe you'll be reincarnated into a richer person. You did some bad stuff, you may be reincarnated into somebody less or some kind of animal, I guess. I don't know. But can I tell you what your Bible says? Your Bible says it really clearly. If you die in your sins, you are separated from God forever, not for a period of time, forever, for eternity, in hell, suffering. So don't fool yourself because eternity is a long time. Think about it. It's a long time. You think, you know, you have those weeks. are like, man, this is a long week. Listen, that ain't nothing compared to eternity. Amen. And you will either be in eternity suffering, grinding your teeth, wishing you had listened to this crazy preacher. Hello. And repented of your sin. Or you will be in eternity thanking God for this crazy preacher who brought you to him. Hello. It's one or the other. Important that we understand this. Gospel centrality, to be gospel-centered is only possible by the Spirit, but our cooperation is needed. Look at verse 21 with me here, and look what Paul says. We'll start there. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The first thing, please repeat this after me. I must honestly evaluate all areas, not some areas, all areas of my life and see where I am not gospel-centered. The first thing that I have to do, if I'm going to be gospel-centered, the first practical thing is I need to sit down and have an honest evaluation. An honest evaluation. Most of us would say this. Most of us would say, I am my worst critic. How many of y'all would agree with that? You're your worst critic, right? You're, you're the one. You can raise your hand. This is not a trick question. I'm being for real. You're your, you, you criticize yourself harder than anybody else does, right? But can I tell you something? Sometimes you are the one that is in the way of you having an honest estimation of your gospel-centeredness in your life. While you are your greatest critic, you want to know why? I'm going to tell you why. This, this is where it's going to happen. Because it's going to be tough. Because we treat grace lightly. Because what we do is we look at grace as a pass on my sin rather than deliverance from my sin. So what happens is this, I live with the grace pass and I judge my life based on my motives, based on my intentions, not based on my follow through and what I'm doing. Here's what I'm telling you. Stop looking at your life from the view of what I know I should do, from the view of what I, what, what I, what I really would like to try to do, from the view of what I meant to do, and start looking at your life from what am I doing. See, that's different. See, when you take it from that perspective, now you remove all of your intention, all of your motive, you put that to the side, and you measure yourself based on what is really happening. Because you want to know what the fact of the matter is? The fact of the matter is, that's where you need to measure yourself. Not based on intention and motive, because you can die with good motives and never accomplish all of those good things you wanted to do. Hello? And will any of that matter? No. And again, you're not earning salvation. You're measuring your life. You read your Bible. The Apostle Paul is constantly communicating. We read it this morning when we went through communion. We talked about it, that we are supposed to examine ourselves. Paul tells the church, he says, listen, you need to check yourself to see if you are in Christ. He's telling them straight up, look at yourself. Don't just assume that everything is okay. Grace is not just some pass for you to just get by on your sin. Grace is the power for you to overcome your sin. That's what grace is. Grace is the power for you and I to live righteously, not to just want to do it. Does that mean there's no struggle? Absolutely not. I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 or 2 Corinthians chapter 7, one of those two there. And the apostle Paul talks about the things that I will to do, I don't do, the things that I don't want to do. Those are the things that I do. And he goes and he's confusing. And, he's, and what he's telling you about is the struggle that we all have. We all struggle. That's not what I'm talking about. If you're telling me you're struggling, you're battling. See, you tell me you're fasting, seeking God, memorizing scripture, trying to overcome sin, then I'm not talking to you. What I'm saying is, if you're that person that is saying, yeah, God can do it, but you're doing nothing to partner with him, you're a hypocrite. I'll tell you what, I'm the first person, the first person. You can ask anybody who really knows me. I am the first one who doesn't believe in counseling. I hate counseling. People be like, I'm not going to call you for counseling anymore. You can call me for counseling. That's fine. That's not my point. I hate counseling 
Because you're depending on someone else to fix your problem, right? And here's what I understand. The Bible says, Jesus says, he is sending the counselor. Hear me now. Why do I need to go to somebody else to counsel me, right? When I have the Holy Ghost who lives inside of me, who knows me, who searches me, who has all of the answers of truth. You want to know why I have to go to that person? Because I'm too lazy to pay the price to be with the counselor. I'd rather pay $120 than pay hours of my life sitting down before God, letting him deal with me. That's the fact. And so why do I hate counseling? Because I see people coming to counseling, and you know what I do? Here, here, here's how counseling goes. I listen to what you're telling me, and then I'm going to tell you, okay, well, this is what the scripture says. I'm going to try to give you some practical application. I'm going to tell you to do it. You want to know what 90% what of people do when they come to counseling? Nothing. Nothing. They come out of counseling. They don't want to apply the principles. <laughs> Glory to God. I'm, I'm encouraging you all to come get counseling from me, right? <laughs> No, you're just dying to call me up and be like, Bishop, I need some counseling. Listen, we're supposed to counsel one another. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not talking about the encouragement that's supposed to happen. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really not submitting because you know what I see? What I see is that God has the ability. What I know is God has the answers. But we have to be willing to come together with him and allow him to work on our hearts. Sometimes we're the greatest issue, the greatest hindrance to an honest evaluation. Here's the thing that the Apostle Paul says. He says this. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. Let's look at that word live for a moment and what he's meaning when he says that. Because when we're evaluating our life, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, for me to breathe. That word live means to breathe. So to breathe is Christ. To be among the living, not the lifeless or the dead, or, or the dead is Christ. It means to enjoy real life is Christ. It means to have true life is Christ or to have something worthy of calling it life is Christ this is what Paul is saying he's saying for me to live everything that I have all of my being everything is about Christ in every area of my life if I call it life and Jesus is not there I'm a liar because that's not real life but everything in my life. Now, 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 now that gets kind of, you know, you get kind of confused. You're like, yeah, but what about work and what about family and what about all of these things? All of those things should have Christ at the center. Because all of them, listen, as horrible as your job may be, glory to God. I know some of you are like, man, I hate my job. Listen to me. Can I, can I, can I, I'm going to give you a scripture. I'm going to give you a scripture right here. Turn, turn, look, look at verse 29. Look, just, look at verse, you, 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 you probably did just like read past it, didn't even think about what it just said here. Look at verse 29, chapter 129. It says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Hold on, time out. I don't want to be granted suffering. Oh, glory to God. Did you hear what it just, I don't know, did, did you read that with me? See, here, here's the problem with us Christians, is that we never look at suffering as a positive thing. We, I'm going to go from the book of 1 Peter in a couple weeks probably, but that book deals with trial and suffering and all that type of stuff. But we as Christians, going through hardship, you know what we automatically do? This is a good thing, but it's also a negative. We automatically look at our life. Where am I in sin? What am I doing wrong? What's the problem here? Like Christians aren't supposed to suffer. Listen, it's good that when suffering comes, it makes me evaluate. But when you evaluate honestly, and not to say that you think you're perfect, but when you evaluate honestly and you know that you're trying to live for Jesus, can you just embrace the fact that maybe it has been granted to you to suffer? Hallelujah. I got like five people over here got it. The rest of y'all are like, Bishop, I want to hear that. Listen, that's a prophetic word for you. Glory to God. You need to understand that. Jesus not only opens the way of salvation, but he says, here, come and suffer with me. Why? It is in the midst of suffering that you will get to know him better than any other place in your life. It is when you are going through the most confusing, the most difficult, the most heart-wrenching moments of your life that you will get to know your Savior better than anything else. Listen, you have high moments, you ain't really paying attention. 
But when you have those low moments and you've really met Jesus, you know what happens? Those low moments are moments that you and him are face to face and you are talking. You may not feel him there, but you are in his face. God, talk to me. God, show me. You're in this word looking. And you know what? In the midst of that is when you get to know him. So why would he entrust you with a job that you hate? Listen, he wants you to know him better. He wants you to know him better. He wants you to know him better in the midst of that situation. And so ultimately, when we're looking at all of life, for me to live is Christ. Hardship, Christ is there with me. Good times, Christ is the source of that. Whatever it is, everything, my family, you know what? What I get to experience in my, I was going to put it on Facebook and I didn't do it. But it's amazing to me how through my daughter and through my wife, I'm able to see the grace of God so clearly. It's amazing through these wonderful women because my wife is doing a phenomenal job of training my daughter on how to respect, on how to love, on how to serve. And so through them, even when I'm a jerk, yes, I'm a jerk sometimes. It happens every once in a while. That's one of those areas, right? Work in progress right here. Got that? Even when I'm like that, and they're loving and caring, and, they, and, and you know, they, they ask me questions, because, you know, sometimes I just get quiet on them. Wife would be like, she, like yesterday, I was just quiet. She sat down with me, glory to God. She said, I'm going to sit down here with you. I almost growled. I was like, I just want to sit alone. I don't want, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, love your wife like Christ loved the church. And I just stood quiet, and I was like eating. And she's like, well, I can see you're pretty quiet today. I'm like, I'm like, babe, I love you. I, <laughs> I, just, I just don't want to talk right now. You know, I'm, I'm in my head with stuff and, you know, whatever the case may be. My daughter was sitting down on the couch together and she did something and I breathed funny. And she's like, daddy, is there something wrong with your breathing? Are you okay? I'm like, these women just love me so much. They, <laughs> they, they just want to help me get through whatever it is that I'm going through, right? But, it's, but, but, but I get to see Jesus in that stuff. At the moment, come on, I'm being a jerk. I'm not seeing Jesus. But later on, like, man, look at Jesus just right there. Why are you so quiet right now? What's up? All right? Ultimately, we get to see the grace of God. Paul says it clearly. For me to live is Christ. And then he goes on to say, and to die or to have died is gain. He's saying, look, see, and this, 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 here, 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 here's the thing. This is why this is so important. Can you really identify with what Paul is saying? Really? Can you really identify with him? Do you really say, for me, man, it's all about Jesus. For me, it is all about him. And to die is gain. To die is an advantage. That's what that word gain means. It's an advantage. It's like a payoff. To die is gain. It's better for me. I, I, look, let, let's keep reading. I, I want you to see what Paul says. He says in verse 22, he says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose or what, 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 or what I shall choose? I cannot tell. He says this, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Do you say that? Do you like look at your family that you love so much and say, man, I love you, but I can't wait to be with Jesus forever. I mean, let's just be real for a moment, because I, I, I think, you know, we're fake sometimes. We're like, we should say that. But if I, I'm going to just be real for me, I don't say that. I'm, I'm just being straight up. Wow, everybody's like, oh, my goodness. Listen to me. I preach this message to myself just as much as to you. I struggle with this. I preach this because I need to hear the gospel. I need to hear this. I'm not, I don't walk on clouds somewhere. What I realize is this. is that when I look at, man, I enjoy my family. I love my family. And sometimes I lose sight. But I can tell you what. When I get into the presence of God, it's at those moments that I realize, man, there's nothing like being in his presence. And what we've got to do is we've got to get to that place because until I can truly share the sentiment of the Apostle Paul, I will never and can never be fully gospel-centered in my life. That's about time. 
until that is my sin, until there is a struggle within me that I want to be with Christ, that I want to experience his glory forever. Why is it a gain? Because you know what? When I go to heaven, I no longer have to worry. There's no more heartache. There's no more difficulty. There's no more questions. There's nothing else except the glory and majesty of my king. And so why would I not want to be there? You want to know why for most of us? Because we love this world more than we love our Savior. You know what that calls us to do? I'll tell you what it calls me to do. It calls me to repent before God. It calls me to humble myself before God and to ask for his forgiveness and ask him to be merciful and to help me to have the right heart. When you look at this, Paul saying to live as Christ and to die as gain, does it mean that I am not concerned about this world and the things in this life? No, it means I am not consumed by this world or the things in this life. That is the difference. We have to be concerned about the things God has entrusted us with. I'm concerned about my wife. I'm concerned about my daughter. I'm concerned about you as the church that God has called me to lead. I'm concerned about you, but I'm not consumed. Because at the end of the day, I'm consumed by him. At the end of the day, I'm consumed by who he is. And when difficulty comes, listen, you can't let those things consume you. You have to let Jesus consume you. So the first thing you do, the first step that's practical is you need to search. You need to look at your life. You need to evaluate yourself. Find out where it is you're not gospel-centered. When we went through those four points, maybe you're not gospel-centered in your identity. Maybe you are not gospel-centered within your worship. Maybe you're not gospel-centered in community. Maybe it's that you're not gospel-centered in mission. Maybe you're not gospel-centered in your marriage or with your children or in your workplace. Maybe you're not gospel-centered wherever it may be. But you and I, we have to evaluate that if we're going to be gospel-centered. Amen? Amen? Point number two, say this with me. To become gospel-centered, I must embrace my need for it. Now, that sounds like pretty simple, like I should know that, but here's the truth. Many Christians do not see the need for gospel centrality, especially on a personal and continual level. When you hear the message being preached, this is what happens to us a lot of times when we're in church. When we're in church, we listen to a message that, we're, that, that, that we hear, and we forget that we are supposed to take this message personally, that we are supposed to take this message home. I said in the beginning, if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we must be gospel-centered individually. I must be gospel-centered as a person. The gospel must be center of my life. It must be the first thing, last thing. It must be the center. That's the bottom line, if we're going to be that. But you know what a lot of people, a lot of people look at the message, and they're like, nah, you know, I, I don't really need to be gospel-centered all the time. Just sometime. Just some areas. When I come to church, we'll be gospel-centered. We'll talk about Jesus there. But that's not what I'm talking about. I was writing on a post yesterday on Facebook. Someone was talking about wanting to be financially free. And I, you know, I gave him the whole Dave Ramsey, live like no one else now so you can live like no one else later. Great principle, awesome thing. And I said, you know what the problem is? Everybody wants the payoff, but very few are willing to apply the principles. Everyone wants heaven. Everybody wants heaven. Everyone wants a blessed marriage. Everybody wants godly children. Everybody wants, you know, all that. Everybody wants that, don't we? Is there anybody who doesn't want that? Everybody in here wants those things. The question is, are you willing to apply the principles to see those things? Are you willing to apply the principles? Are you willing to really get down and get in with God and allow him to transform your way of thinking? That's the primary principle. To allow him to transform how you view life, to allow him to transform how you view situation, to allow him to, to transform the way you view yourself, to allow him to transform the way you view money, to allow him to transform the way you view everything. Are you willing to do that? Are you really willing to get in with him? Or do you feel, you know what? I know enough Bible. I know enough scriptures. I've heard enough messages. I've read enough Bible or whatever the case is. Is that the mindset that you have? Or are you saying, God, I want to be wrecked afresh every time I come before your presence? I want to be transformed every time I come before your word. I don't want to just sit down before your word and be a casual reader. I want you to inscribe your word upon my heart every time that I sit down. How is it that you come before the word of God? The Apostle Paul says here in verse 27, and here's where, here, here's where we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this topic of understanding and embracing the need to be gospel-centered. Verse 27, he says, only let your conduct 
be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says to let our conduct be a certain way, a conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. When you look at that word conduct and you see what it says, to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, you get that from, from that word. It's, it's like polythomai or something like that. And it actually is the word that we get the word politics from. And what he is really saying is he's saying you are a citizen of heaven. Therefore, act as a citizen of heaven while you are here in this earth. In every area of your life and all that you do, there should be something that is a reflection of heaven where you have been called to. Of heaven who, where Jesus is enthroned. There should be something that is different. Your conduct should be different. Your conduct, the way that you act, all of these things should be different. But here's what I want you to get. The Apostle Paul wasn't simply talking about our behavior. Because here's the fact. The fact is that if he was just talking about our behavior, then he would be talking about external morality being enough. And if that were the case, and this is about to offend some people, if external morality is what Paul was talking about, then many unsaved people would live more worthy of the gospel than some Christians. What do you mean, Bishop? How is that possible? Listen, you have a lot of folks out there that they hate God. They hate the church. They want nothing to do with Christianity or Jesus. But they are more moral than Christians that you know all over the place. They're against abortion. They're against same-sex marriage. They're against all of those things. They, don't, they, they, they believe that there are certain things that are moral. They don't even acknowledge where they get those moral principles or that moral compass that's inside of them. But regardless of all of that... They're more moral than some Christians. They're more hospitable than some Christians. And so if it was just based on morality and just on being a do-gooder, then you know what would happen? Most folks, they would just be, you know, they're good to go. They're living worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul wasn't saying that. He was talking about conducting yourself. Being a citizen, demonstrating something. This is not also, again, this is not trying to prove our worth of the gospel. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you need to act like, you know, you, you, you're worth. None of us are worthy of the gospel. Amen. That's what the gospel teaches us. That none of us are worth. We cannot be good enough for Jesus to say, you know what? Man, I'm saving you because you're so great. If there was anybody on this planet who Jesus could say that to, he died in vain. That's the bottom line. That is not what he's saying. What he is saying is this. He's saying that our lives are to reflect the value of the gospel. To live and conduct myself in a manner that is worthy in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It means that my life is a reflection of the value of my Savior. My life is a reflection of the value of what Jesus has done within me. That's what it means to live a life in the midst of this world, to show this world, no matter how good you are, no matter how accomplished you are, no matter how much you have no matter how good it may seem you need to realize there is a greater value to life than is only found in Jesus Christ that is the reason why we don't run after the same things the world does that is the reason we are not striving for the same goals that the world does what are we striving for I mean think about it as a Christian think from what is it you strive for every day do you strive to glorify Jesus? Do you strive to honor him? Do you strive to please him in everything? Do you strive to serve him even when it means I have to say no to things that I would really love to say yes to? Is that not the goal of a Christian? Not to live for my own appetite, but to live to honor and glorify God? That is the goal of a Christian. You've been bought, you've been washed in holy sacrificial blood. Therefore, my goal as a Christian is what? Is to bring him glory and honor. Not to glorify myself. It may mean that I don't get that promotion because I'm not willing to lie, because I'm not willing to do things that don't bring glory and honor to God. It may mean that I'm not willing to take that job because it's going to kill my quality of life, because my goal is not the same. I am not trying to just have a big house, nice car, and all of this money and not have time with my family. 
Not to be able to have fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not be able to share in the richness of community the way that, that's the reason why you would say no to stuff like that. Oh yeah, it pays better. Oh yeah, I like the, you know, all of the prestige that comes with it. But at the end of the day, is Jesus glorified by the decision? At the end of it all. That's the goal as a Christian. We're not living for the same stuff that the world is. And if we are, we need to repent. If my goals, listen, sit down. Forget what your goals are. You know, some of you have five-year, 10-year, 15-year plans, all that kind of stuff. Some of you don't have any kind of those plans, but you have in your head these things that you really are striving for. This is what I want you to do. Be honest with yourself. Write down those things on a piece of paper and see if they align with the scriptures. And do me a favor. Don't be twisting scriptures either. I'll tell you a cute story, and then we'll move on to my next point. My daughter the other day, I was telling her, I said, listen, we're going to the, we're gonna go to this activity. We're going to go to this, you know, we're going to go to this thing. And um, my daughter comes out, and she's like, but, Daddy, why should we go to that? They didn't come to our thing. And I was like, baby, that doesn't matter. We're Christians. The Bible says to do unto others as we would have done unto us. And she's like, yeah. And they did unto us what they wanted done unto them. So why are we going to go? And I'm like walking into my room and I'm like cracking up. I'm like, girl, I said, my wife is sitting at the table. And I told her, I said, girl, do not be twisted. That is not what the scriptures teach. Now, that's not what the scriptures say. But listen, my daughter, she was innocently and honestly wasn't trying to be funny. She wasn't trying to rewrite the Bible. She's like, they did unto us what they wanted done. So we just do it back to them. I'm like, no, that's not the scriptures. But that's how we as Christians are. We'll write down our goals. Yeah, my goal is this. My goal is that. My goal is the next thing. Okay. And then what happens? Well, let me see if I can find a scripture to align that. How about we do it in reverse? How about we read our Bibles and let our goals, our desires, our passions come out of the scriptures? How about that? Third point. Repeat this after me, please. I must execute a plan of action that will keep the gospel central in my life. And so we talked about the first point, evaluating myself. We talked about the second point, is I must embrace my need to be gospel-centered. And I'm going to give you a couple of more points, and then we're going to close. But the first thing that we have to do is I have to intentionally, intentionally remind myself and others of the gospel. I must intentionally remind myself and others of the gospel. It's amazing. We do communion, us. We do communion once a month. The last Sunday of every month at this point. I want to change that, and we're going to change that in the future. But we do communion the last Sunday of every month at 10 o'clock in the morning. Reasons for that is because I believe that communion is a special time. I believe that communion is a time for true believers. It's not just for everybody. Sadly, you have this, and, and, and I hate to offend anybody who may come from a Catholic background, but the fact is we have folks that come from a Catholic mi mindset, and you come to church, live like a heathen. That means someone who does not love Jesus all week long, and you come to church on Sunday, and you go on ahead and you take communion, you're forgiven of your sins. That's that is not what communion is. That is not what communion is. Communion is something that is a remembrance of the gospel in, in its totality. Why do you say that? Well, here's what happens. We remember the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and that reminds us of our sin because we remember the reason why he had to die on the cross is because we are sinners, period. And then we get to see he died, he conquers death, and we look forward to the day that he returns for us. Hallelujah. You know when they did communion? They probably did communion at least once a week, maybe every day. In your Bible, when they came together and they broke bread. Now, I want you to understand why this is important. Because every time they did it, Jesus said it clearly. Do this in... Why would he say that? He's talking to his disciples. They saw him be crucified. Why would he be telling them this? Because even though they saw it, if they didn't have a constant reminder, they would forget. They had this action that becomes a religious mockery, which is communion. They had this thing that they did, and it was a reminder every week, Jesus died for your sins.
It was a reminder every week you couldn't save yourself. It was a reminder every week he resurrected from the dead. It was a reminder every week he's coming back for you. It's a reminder every week you are called to live a life that is worthy of the gospel because every time that you do this, you're remembering by nature, church, we are forgetful. And not only are we forgetful, we become disenchanted when we don't have the same experiences all the time. You may come to God's presence and be in prayer. And I can tell you of some glorious times in the presence of God. And I can tell you that they're far and in between many times in my life. I don't know why, but all I know is this is that if I allow myself to live solely based upon the hairs that stood up or did not, hello, I will be a horrible Christian. Because in those hard moments when I don't feel my hair standing up for good reasons, in those hard moments when I don't feel so beloved at those moments, in those hard moments where I don't feel like Jesus even cares about what I'm going through, if I do not remind myself of the gospel and if I do not get around people, listen, you need to get around folks who are not giving you the right hand of fellowship to go sin, but who are calling you to repentance and reminding you of the gospel so that way you do not continue to act foolishly, but that you will live wisely, redeeming the time and being a witness unto a world that needs to see you. Listen, we need to intentionally remind ourselves. Listen, if you ain't got nobody around you, I'm going to say this. That's your fault because there are people that want to be around you. Let me say that off the bat. But if for some reason you don't have people around you, maybe you feel like they're not holy enough for you. Maybe you feel like they're not nice enough for you. Maybe you feel like they're not real enough for you. Whatever it is you feel, here's what I'm going to tell you. You need to make it a point, whether you have 100 people around you or you have none. You need to make it a point to worshipfully meditate upon the scriptures that is the best way to remind yourself the best way to keep yourself reminded of the gospel is to meditate i talked about it the first week when i preached i believe and i talked about the indicatives of the gospel those things that are promises those things that god declares about you those things sit down and remind yourself worshipfully what do i mean by that sitting down reading what the scriptures say go and read the book of galatians go and read like the first three chapters of the book of ephesians read those places in your bible that talk about how god chose you you didn't choose him look at how god predestined you and all of these wonderful glorious things that you had nothing to do with your salvation revel in those revel in that wonder that god chose you not because you were so great not because you were so wonderful that god chose you in spite of you he chose you because he is good and he is merciful that is what i mean by worshipfully sitting down meditating upon the scriptures and allowing the holy spirit reminding yourself because you know what when you're reminded you will be a reminder Let me say it again when you are reminded you will be a reminder so when you get around those other brothers, you get around those other sisters that are complaining about life, remind them. Amen. You remember what Jesus went through? You remember the price that Jesus paid? The suffering he went through on the cross? Remember those things? Keep your mind focused on what he did, and he did it for you. He did it for you. The second thing that I would encourage you to do as part of this action plan is intensely refute all anti-biblical or extra-biblical teaching that detracts from the gospel. Refute it intensely. Don't allow anybody to come to you with stuff. Don't be silently sitting by hoping that they figure it out. Be a person who opens your mouth. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's uncomfortable. I have those situations all the time. And you would think it's not uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable for me as well. When I sit there and I hear somebody saying something that's stupid and they're saying that that's like the Bible. Somebody saying stuff that is dumb. Like God is in that. Like God is part of that. No, he's not. Communicate it. Don't be confused. Learn what your Bible said. But can I say this? In line with this, put this in parentheses if you're taking notes. Don't exercise all of your energy standing against things, but standing up for the gospel. Let me give you some examples. I'll give you two because these are like some really like hot topics in our day. 
One is the issue of abortion. The other one is the issue of same-sex marriage. Two, 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 two big topics. And let me say this. I want to say this before I make my next point. My point is, totally, 100%, the Bible speaks against both of them, hands down. As a Christian, I shouldn't support that because that is not what the Bible teaches. That is, that is, that is inconsistent with the character of God. The Bible condemns both of those things. Plain out. Now, here's the point. The point is, I have a choice. <clears throat> I can stand firm up for the gospel. In other words, I'm standing firm for what? For life. Right? That's what I'm doing as a Christian. I'm not solely standing against abortion. I'm standing up for life. How do I do that? How do, how, how do I do that? Let me tell you in a practical way. Not just on the baby level. There's certain things you can do. Like, for example, you could go and you get connected with a Christian pregnancy crisis place that you can volunteer your time one day a week. And you can go in there and you can minister unto these young women that are coming in there that desperately need someone to love on them and to point them to better ways. That's one way that you don't have to stand against abortion solely, but you stand up for life. That's one way that you do that. But how about this? This is just amazing because the whole issue of abortion is that it's murder. That's the issue. But how about this? How about we love one another? That's standing up for life. Because Jesus makes it pretty clear that if you hate someone, if you have these things in your heart towards somebody, then he, he's, he's connecting all of that with murder. He's saying you're in danger of judgment. You're in danger of hell. And so what does that mean? We're over here, and this is how we, we Christians do it. We stand against abortion is wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and we're against that. But we don't exercise our energy and standing for the right thing, therefore making us look like hypocrites. Let me make it more crystal clear because these two will directly connect. We stand against marriage, same-sex marriage. Why? It's in opposition to God, clearly. But can we do this? How about if we just stand up for heterosexual marriage by fighting for our marriages? How about that? Hallelujah. How about we stop telling who shouldn't get married and we start showing them what marriage should look like? How about we start living, loving, respecting, honoring one another the way the Bible says and fighting from that position rather than solely being a voice against something? Why don't we do that? That's what I mean by standing up for the gospel, by striving together and saying, yeah, I'm against that. But you know what I'm really for? I want you to see what Jesus can do to a marriage. I want you to see what Jesus can do in a marriage, what Jesus can do in a family who allows him to be first. And lastly, and I'm getting ready to close with this, turn your Bibles to the book of Jude, chapter 3. I told you on Wednesday, if you were here, that I would go here on Sunday. Jude, verse 3, not chapter 3. Jude, verse 3. It's only one chapter there. The book of Jude in verse 3. You got to say so. And it said, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. First of all, we need to intentionally remind ourselves of the gospel we need to intensely refute anti-biblical, extra-biblical teaching that detracts from the gospel and exercise our energies. But we also need to embrace our responsibility to be a witness of the power of the gospel and refuse to excuse ourselves. When you read this scripture here in the book of Jude, he's talking to the church. He said, this faith has been given to us to defend. Not to the preachers, not to the pastors, not to the elders, not to the deacons. They all have the same responsibility. But the members of the body of Christ, the people who call themselves Christians, you have a responsibility to be a defender of the faith out there. And the greatest defense of the gospel is your lifestyle. The greatest, listen, I'm not telling you not to share the gospel. You need to open your mouth and tell people about Jesus. Don't just tell them about Jesus either and be like, Jesus loves you. Why does that matter? 
You need to let people know why that matters. Why does that matter? I mean, let's be real about it. We don't want to talk about that. But you know why it matters? Because you're a sinner on your way to hell if you don't know Jesus. And he took your beating on that cross. He took your sin on that cross. Jesus doesn't want you to go to hell. That's the reason why it's important that he loves you. He died in your place. So that way you would not have to suffer the consequences of sin. So that way you would not have to suffer separation from God for all of eternity. But so that way you would be able to experience eternal life. That's the reason why that's important. But the greatest witness is your lifestyle. The greatest witness is for you to be out there living fully for Jesus. I said this when I opened up this series. Talked about being fruitful Christians. But fruitful Christianity, it ends where it starts. And where is that? The gospel. You become a Christian, whether it was clear or not, at the gospel. You can't be a Christian outside of the gospel. You can't be a Christian unless you came to understand your sin. Until you came to understand that you were guilty. Until you came to understand that he came to save you and died for you. That's where it starts. And I close with this little poem that I saw when I was reading. It's real short. It says, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day. By the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? According to you, I'm not telling you that you're writing a new gospel. You are the example of the gospel in the world you live. And every day, you're adding another chapter to that. And so it is my prayer that we will be a gospel-centered church the way that God has called us to be. Amen? Everybody bow your heads, please, and close your eyes.